Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to another edition of Head to Head, the new debating show, uh, which is getting people very excited up and down the country. Here at Talk Radio TV, what we're trying to do uh, is put the biggest brains in front of you so that they can argue with each other uh, and leave you to form your own opinions on some of the big stories of the day. We're going to talk now to Toby Young, founder of the Free Speech Union uh, and also uh, the editor of Lockdown Skeptics, uh, against Christopher Snowden from the Institute of Economic Affairs. They've both uh, engaged uh, quite recently recently in various different um, episodes on social media about the lockdown, about the way the government's been operating, about the things that the government is now suggesting that it does. Uh, let me say welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us, guys. We're going to try and keep it as uh, civil as possible. But if you feel like insulting each other, that's OK, too. It's going out on YouTube, obviously. Uh, so there isn't too much censoriousness going on. Um, but, Christopher, let me set you up first with your opening statement. The, the question I suppose we're going to be trying to solve here is has the government done the right thing? Um, is the government doing the right thing? Or has the government made a complete and utter hash of all of it? I think at the moment the government is doing broadly the right thing. I think its, um, its policy, its roadmap for getting out of lockdown is a bit too slow, but we'll see about that. If we start following the data, then um, it might come out a bit quicker. But in terms of should it induce the lockdown in the first place, I think it absolutely had no choice. Now, this is a, a fairly serious disease. It kills about one in 100 people who get it. It hospitalizes about three in 100 people who get it. It has a very pernicious habit of, um, well, one of the most dangerous things about it is it has a very long incubation period. And that means it can spread very, very rapidly because people simply don't know they have it until it's too late. They don't know if their local area is infested with it until it's too late. The other big problem with it is it has a, capability to totally overwhelm healthcare systems. It requires people who are hospitalized most of the time to go into in intensive care. And there's no health system in the world has enough ICU beds. So we had a situation in December. We started off with um, 15,000 cases. That then doubled in two weeks to 30,000 cases. It then doubled again in the next two weeks to 60,000 cases. And they're based on the tests. And we know the tests only pick up about half the cases. So by the end of December, we had over 100,000 infections a day. We could not afford for that to double again to one and a half million new infections per week and double again to three million new infections per week. We took it too far as it was. The effects of those 100,000 infections at the end of December was, was seen in a few weeks' time with over 1,000 deaths a day. We had over 1,000 deaths a day for several weeks. Uh, we should, in retrospect, probably have locked down sooner. We certainly couldn't afford not to lock down because the only way to deal with this virus, other than through vaccination, is to restrict human contact, human interaction. You don't have to use lockdowns to do that. You can hope that people might voluntarily lock themselves at home. But the reality is, unfortunately, at the national level in the UK, the only thing that has ever got infections down has been uh, very severe restrictions, lockdowns. 
in other words. And as a result of lockdown, we've seen an infection rate fall by about 85%. Uh, things are looking a great deal better now, but we could have had a humanitarian disaster over the course of this winter. And I'm very glad that we've avoided that, particularly since we had the vaccines. It would have been insane, I think, having gone through everything we've gone through over the course of the last year, to suddenly say, just as we've got the vaccination program started, hell, to hell with it. Let's, let's risk 200,000 people dying or more in this virus in the space of uh, a few months over winter. Okay, Christopher Snowden there setting out his, uh, his stall uh, for why lockdown was necessary. Toby Young, um, let's hear from you. Thanks, Mike. Um, so I want to first of all um, explain, uh, give you some sense of the harms that are being done by lockdowns. Then I want to discuss whether those harms were really necessary. Have the lockdowns actually prevented more harm than they've caused? And finally, I just wanted to outline an alternative to the lockdowns, which isn't let it rip, but something closer to focused protection, as described in the Great Barrington Declaration. So first of all, quickly, just canter through the harms. So. Um, the UK's um, gross domestic product uh, contracted by 9.9% last year. Um, uh, it looks like unemployment is going to increase to 2.6 million, partly as a consequence this year. That's according to uh, HM Treasury. Um, according to Ernst & Young, Britain's, Britain's uh, deficit for 2020 is estimated to be 420 million. So be in no doubt that this has caused catastrophic economic harm. That was the greatest contraction the British economy has suffered since 1709, the time of the Great Frost. And these aren't just going to uh, harm profit margins. These, these, the, the economic impact is going to harm people too. Um, a professor of risk management at Bristol University called Philip Thomas uh, carried out some research. He estimates that the economic damage done by the lockdowns is going to cost every British citizen on average four months of life. It's going to foreshorten their lives on average by four months per person. If you multiply that by 67 million, that's the equivalent of 560,000 lives lost as a result of the lockdown policy. Um, a paper in December um, for the think tank Civitas, written by Tim Knox and um, Jim McConnellog, uh, estimated that 20,000 people uh, will die unnecessarily as a result of delayed cancer treatment and treatment for other diseases. We know about the education impact. Any of us who have children, I've got four children of school age, are aware just how harmful the closure of schools has been on their mental health. Um, the uh, IFS estimates that closing schools for roughly half a year uh, will have such a, an adverse impact on the earnings of that generation that it'll cost the Treasury over 100 million in tax receipts. Um, uh, uh, and then there's the moral, ethical and legal case against uh, lockdowns. Lord Sumption, formerly of the Supreme Court, said in a lecture last year, quote, it has been the most significant interference with personal freedom in the history of our country. Now, I don't think Chris would dispute any of those harms, but I think his argument is going to be that the lockdowns have prevented uh, more harm than they've caused. And uh, no doubt uh, he will be relying on the modelling of Imperial College. They produced a paper, the modelling team led by Neil Ferguson, I think published on March 26th, uh, March 16th of last year, known as Report 9, in which they estimated that half a million Britons would die if the government did nothing. Um, but um, I'd like to ask Chris, given how critical he's been of the modelling that the same modelling team at Imperial College have done recently uh, to try and discourage the government 
on lifting the current restrictions has been very critical of that. So they've made some very unrealistic assumptions. And their estimate that 130,000 people will die in a third wave this summer if we lift the lockdown restrictions, he thinks is unrealistic. How can you be critical of those modeling predictions now, but accept their predictions from last March? And we have very good reason for thinking that those predictions last March made by Imperial College's modeling team were unduly alarmist. So um, okay. team at Uppsala University in Sweden um, applied the imperial model, the epidemiological model to Sweden uh, to project how many deaths in Sweden were likely to happen if the Swedish government didn't lock down. And they came up with a figure of 96,000 people. That was the number of people they estimated would die if Sweden didn't lock down. Uh, turns out fewer than 13,000 people have actually died in Sweden, even though Sweden didn't lock down last year. So uh, if you were, uh, it looks as though the imperial modelers overestimated the impact of not locking down by 700%. There's numerous pieces of research have been done to show that lockdowns make uh, no more difference when it comes to preventing COVID deaths than milder, more voluntary restrictions. So for instance, a team at Stanford led by John Ioannidis uh, 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 published a paper in the European Journal of Clinical Investigation published in January, peer-reviewed paper. They looked at uh, lockdown restrictions in 10 countries last spring and they concluded that in the seven that had locked down quite severely compared to the three that didn't, there was no evidence that the severity of those lockdowns had resulted in a lower rate of transmission. Right. Let me just stop country. you there, Toby, because you, you're, you're running over more than twice what uh, we thought you would do. So let me just give Chris the opportunity to answer, first of all, some of the things you've said. But also my first question, which will be to both of you, and you'll be able to make plenty of these points later on. There's no, there's no restriction on, on time as such. But let me ask you this question first, Chris, as well, in addition to what Toby just said. Prime Minister Boris Johnson this week set out his roadmap to recovery. Um, it was obviously a lot more cautious uh, than many businesses would have preferred it to be, uh, but it was welcomed by those who still fear uh, that the virus uh, will kill more people before it disappears. Boris noted that as a result, infections and cases will rise because he said basically whatever happens when you lift the lockdown, it will rise. What have you made so far of the plan? Well, I don't think in a month or two's time we should be worrying too much about the number of infections. I mean, the red line here is hospital capacity. I think it's the only justification for lockdown. Of course, if your hospitals are uh, overwhelmed, that also gives you a pretty good indication that a huge number of people are dying. But it's the hospital capacity, I think, um, is the, the main thing that justifies having a uh, hopefully fairly short lockdown. Um, so I don't think we should worry about cases. The vaccines are as good as we hope they are. You know, um, I do believe we should be using data, not dates. I think it's a shame that the government has picked a bunch of arbitrary dates five weeks apart uh, and said over a very long period of time, this is our destination. I think we can quite, quite feasibly reach our destination quicker. The main dates I, data I'd be looking for would be, of course, of course, the number of cases. I would expect to get down to below 3,000 cases by the end of next month, hopefully. I would expect to get down below about 300 hospital admissions. We did that last year without any vaccines. So I don't think it's, it's inconceivable. We, we can manage these kind of figures within three months of, uh, of, of lockdown. And um, and the deaths will be right down. But the main thing, perhaps, is actually just confirming that these vaccines on the first shot are as good as we think they are. The evidence so far suggests they are highly effective at preventing severe disease and hospitalizations and therefore, of course, death. That's really all we need. I'm not too worried about the, the virus spreading. I would like to get the numbers down because one concern, of course, is the possibility of a mutation. But I don't think we can lock down society indefinitely on the basis of that. And to go to Toby's point about May, with regards to the models, yes, I think the model 
um, both the model from Imperial and the model from Warwick are based on uh, unrealistic assumptions, one of which is that the vaccine is less effective than the evidence suggests. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the previous model from Imperial was unrealistic. In any case, I'm not basing what I'm saying here on some model. I'm not particularly interested in Neil Ferguson and his models. I'm just talking about the remorseless logic of exponential growth. We had cases doubling every two weeks. There was no reason to think that in the depths of winter, it was suddenly going to stop doubling every two weeks. So this isn't some complicated computer model. This is just, it's just mathematics. It's just biology. It's just germ theory. These diseases are going to keep spreading unless you have a very high number of people uh, who are immune, and we don't have that, we didn't have that, or if people stop interacting with each other so much. But the point about Christopher uh, last May as well is that I found an interview that you did with me on talk radio uh, at which you were complaining about the lockdown, saying that it was the worst invasion of our civil liberties since the Second World War. Um, so I'll give you a chance to come back on that in a minute. But let me get Toby's uh, reaction, first of all, to um, the, 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 the lifting of the lockdown by Boris Johnson. What do you make of it, Toby? Well, I'm disappointed that Boris appears to have uh, transformed himself into a very elderly tortoise. Um, uh, Matt Hancock, when he was um, hailing the arrival of the vaccines uh, in an interview with The Spectator earlier this year, uh, used the phrase, cry freedom. Well, if this is freedom, um, uh, I'm a monkey's uncle. Um, uh, like Chris, I think that the uh, roadmap um, is far too slow, um, but perhaps for slightly different reasons, or I share Chris's confidence in the protection that are going to be provided by the vaccines. Um, but my reason um, is that I don't think there's any compelling evidence, even if you set aside the models, I don't think there's any compelling evidence if you look at what's actually happened in different countries and compare those that have locked down with those that haven't, or regions within countries that have and haven't. Just, there's just very, very little evidence that lockdowns are effective at reducing transmission. I'll give just one example here, though I can give many more, uh, which is if you look at the data on worldometers, um, uh, the number of deaths per capita in those 11 US states that didn't impose a lockdown, no stay-at-home orders issued, uh, no closure of non-essential businesses, in those 11 states that didn't do those things last winter and haven't done them since, there are actually fewer COVID deaths per capita than in the 39 US states, plus the District of Columbia, uh, that have imposed winter lockdowns. So that, to me, suggests that if you take one country and you look at those areas that have locked down and those areas that haven't, same experiment, natural experiment has been done in Denmark, same conclusion. There doesn't seem to be any signal in that noise. But just to go back to what Chris said, he said basic germ theory suggests that in the absence of locking down, both uh, in March of last year and more recently in January, uh, in, in infections would have just kept on doubling with catastrophic consequences for the NHS. Well, I just don't think there's any good reason to believe that. So um, uh, Chris Whitty said in evidence he gave to the Health Committee in the House of Commons last year that the R rate was actually falling when the lockdown was imposed on the 24th of March last year. Um, and if you look at peak deaths, they occurred last year in the UK, I think on April the 8th. It takes roughly three weeks for, from the moment of infection to someone dying from this disease. Uh, if you go back three weeks, that takes you back to March 19th, five days before the lockdown was imposed. More recently, the data from the Zoe app uh, overseen by Tim Spector at uh, KCL uh, is that uh, infections peaked in the UK around December 31st, January 1st, 
again, a few days before the lockdown. And if you look when deaths peaked, deaths peaked in the, first, in the second wave on January 20th, go back three weeks, that takes us back to the end of December, beginning of January. So there isn't any reason to think that had we not locked down in March and not locked down in January, infections would have continued to rise exponentially. They were falling, seemingly, when those lockdowns were imposed. Mm. Chris, you're smiling there. I sense you may want to come back. I'll give you a minute to answer that. Well, I said you didn't need to have lockdowns. What you need to have is a reduction in human interaction. And if you look at social mobility, Google mobility statistics, you can see that mobility, yeah, it did drop after Christmas in the UK. Let's remember, after Christmas in the UK, the whole of London, large parts of the southeast, were in tier four. Tier four is lockdown. We're all in tier four now, actually, as a matter of legal, uh, legal facts. So if the lockdown skeptics argument is, oh, you don't need to have lockdown, you just need to have tier four for, for, for a large part of the country, and tier three everywhere else, and every pub in the country closed, every restaurant, every thing. This is, seems to be an argument, an argument about uh, almost nothing. It's a uh, difference, almost about a distinction. So yes, once we closed all the pubs, and once we told everybody to stay home, possibly if you look at the data in a certain way, that the, the, the peak happened two or three days before the lockdown. But if the argument is the lockdowns don't work, it's just a coincidence that these rates which are doubling at, at an incredible speed suddenly decide to go down and drop 85% in the, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of winter. This is really anti-scientific stuff. The idea that locking people down isn't going to re reduce the spread of a virus. How can it not? How can it scientifically not reduce the spread of the virus? If we're all staying at home, not seeing anybody, how is the virus spreading? From mm. 5G? Well, I, I would suggest to you, uh, Chris, um, and I'm, I'm, I may find that Toby would agree with me, that it's not necessarily a question necessarily, is it, of whether the lockdown actually works. It's whether or not what the lockdown damage collaterally is, is worth doing. Because that really is the question, I think. And my second question, Toby, I want you to answer this first, is that you've been targeted, uh, amongst many other journalists, uh, by people like Neil O'Brien MP, uh, who is, of course, uh, Matt Hancock's house elf, as we like to call him, um, as, as if you're some kind of dangerous individual, despite the fact that all you're doing is asking questions of whether the lockdown was worth doing. And I think that's an important distinction. You're not a COVID denier. You're not a lockdown denier, which is the most ridiculous phrase I think I've ever heard. But why do you think they're so afraid of you asking these questions? That's a good question, Mike. I mean, I, I've been shocked by um, the involvement of Neil O'Brien in effectively trying to um, uh, silence critics of the government's lockdown policy. Um, uh, he's, uh, uh, you know, until very recently, he was a member of the government. And I think it's pretty sinister uh, when someone who until recently was a member of the government, I think he's currently a vice chairman of the Conservative Party. He's thought to be a coming man within the party. He's an influential figure for someone so powerful with such political clout uh, to engage in such vituperative, unpleasant, personal criticism, not just of me, uh, but of Professor Carl Hennigan, uh, Professor Srinetra Gupta, uh, Julia Hartley Brewer of um, uh, your own parish. Um, it just doesn't seem like a grown-up, mature way to conduct a debate. There really hasn't been. I'm really grateful to you, Mike, and to Talk Radio for allowing me and Chris to have a robust, grown-up discussion about this. There's been very, very little. Mm. Um, the only other one I can think of was the one between Dan Hodges and uh, Peter Hitchens. Yeah. Uh, there really hasn't been a proper public debate about this policy. Uh, people have just taken it for granted, for the most part, that the government is right. The government has been completely uninhibited about using various sophisticated psychological techniques 
to persuade people that its way of managing this epidemic is the right way. I think that should be ruled out of court as well. Government shouldn't be able to engage in subliminal psychological brainwashing techniques in order to win the support of the public for their policies. And I think Neil, Neil, Neil O'Brien's very aggressive attempts to shut up anyone who has the temerity to criticise this policy is really sinister, really sinister. Yes, and I think Christopher would uh, would agree that surely debate is, is, is what is required. Um, we can get back to your idea, uh, Chris, of, of when you changed your mind or when you decided that the lockdown was worth doing, if you like, um, because it was the only way to stop the spread of the disease. But I would also say um, that you've used it yourself already in this conversation, um, that it's anti-scientific to criticise the government's policy. Well, I'm not sure the government's policy is entirely scientific. You know, they're using modelers, they're using social psychologists, they're using behavioural scientists. They're not using simply um, medical people to tell us what's wrong. No, I'm not saying that uh, criticism of the government's policy is anti-scientific. I'm saying the claim that lockdowns do not reduce transmission of a disease of the spread person to person is unscientific. It's, it's simply impossible to take this idea seriously. There are basically two ideas uh, behind the uh, lockdowns don't work theory. One is that it's basically just a coincidence. All around the world, bring in lockdown, suddenly cases fall like a stone, but it's just coincidence. It would have happened anyway because it's a change in the season. Or something like that. Well, that's just ridiculous. I don't think we need to waste too much time on that. The other is that people will naturally change their behaviour when they see the hospital is filling up. Now, there is a bit more credibility to that because rates have fallen in, in Sweden since the start of the year somewhat. Um, without a, a lockdown, people have changed their behaviour voluntarily, partially voluntarily, there have been some rules. Um, but the contradiction in the lockdown sceptic's argument there is that you can't claim that people would have locked themselves down anyway because they're sensible and they're responsible for their own health and other people. And they essentially would have behaved in exactly the same way as they did with the lockdown if there hadn't been a lockdown. You can't make that claim and then blame the lockdown for all the social and economic harm. If you believe that had the pubs been open last month, no one would have gone to them, then you can't blame the lockdown for the damage to the hospitality industry. Now, I think if the pubs had been open last month, people would have gone to them. Yeah. Not least people who read the lockdown sceptic. But, but also, Chris, but had people gone to the pubs, Christopher, they wouldn't necessarily have caught the virus because there's very little evidence to suggest that anyone in the hospitality business has been spreading the virus. I think it's three to four percent of cases. The one place we know you get coronavirus is in a hospital. Well, that's certainly true, yeah. And, and there's not a lot we can we can do about that, unfortunately. We've uh, spent a huge amount of effort trying to make these hospitals COVID uh, secure and it's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to make a pub COVID secure. But let's face it, anywhere where people can spread the virus, we've got very poor on you know, in what particular places it's spreading. And I'm not blaming pubs specifically. Let's also say you're allowed to go around people's houses. Do the lockdown sceptics think no one would have done that? Everyone's gone, oh, no, it's getting a bit bad now. Hospitals are filling up. We'll all stay at home. Well, if you do believe that, you can't blame the lockdowns for the economic and the social damage. You're saying that people behave exactly the same uh, anyway. So what's the debate about? Well, I think the debate is about degree, isn't it, Toby? Yes, I do. I mean, I don't think anyone is disputing, Chris, the sort of basic tenets of germ theory. Of course, if you reduce uh, social interaction, you're going to reduce human to human transmission of a virus like this. Um, the question is, are the lockdowns the most effective way of doing that? And do the harm they cause, is it justified by the amount of deaths from COVID they prevent? 
And the evidence suggests the answer is no. I think the counterexample that you haven't really dealt, at least not in this discussion, is the example of Sweden. I'm sorry to bring it up over and over again. But according to, according to data uh, looking at uh, all-cause mortality in Sweden last year, it shows that all-cause mortality per million in Sweden was bang on the European average. And yet every other EU average, and yet every other EU country imposed a lockdown, Sweden didn't. If lockdowns are so effective at preventing deaths, how do you explain that? How do you explain the fact that, that, that Sweden has fewer COVID deaths per million than the UK? You may say, well, the Swedes engaged in voluntary social distancing behavior. Yes, that probably is the explanation, but why couldn't the British people have been trusted to engage in voluntary social distancing behavior? You say it's unrealistic, that if you'd left the pubs open, people wouldn't have gone to the pub. But let's bear in mind that if you're under 60, uh, the, 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 the threat posed to your health, to your life from this disease uh, is not particularly great. According to figures from NHS England, only 388 people died in English hospitals from COVID-19 who were under 60 and had no underlying health conditions last year. 388. That's roughly a quarter of the people who died in road traffic accidents in 2019, according to the Department of Transport. Um, how, do you, how do you explain Florida, Chris? Florida uh, reopened everything on September 25th. Uh, Stay-at-home orders were lifted. Uh, businesses uh, were allowed to open. Schools resumed. S children in Florida have been back at school since last September. And yet Florida has fewer deaths per million than the UK. The UK has had, according to the Blavatnik School of Government, the third most severe, no, the, I think the second most severe lockdown in Europe after Ireland. Uh, 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 and yet it has the third highest death toll in Europe after Belgium and Slovenia. If the lockdowns are so effective at preventing deaths, how do you explain that? Christopher. Well, the people who are dying from COVID-19 are generally picking up the virus when there isn't a lockdown. Whenever we've relaxed a lockdown, without fail, rates have gone up. Slowly at first in July and August, then a bit more rapidly in September and October. That was a case-demic, if you remember it. Then we had a lockdown which reduced the cases. Wales, by the way, had a lockdown two weeks earlier. Their cases fell two weeks earlier. Almost a perfect natural experiment showing the lockdowns work. And then in December, they rose rapidly. What lesson are we supposed to take from Florida and Sweden? If they're such great success stories, and as everyone knows, Sweden's had a huge number of deaths compared to the rest of Scandinavia. And Florida had a massive outbreak uh, around Christmas time. But what lesson, what should we have done in December? that Florida was doing. We should have had more human interaction. We should encourage people to go out more and meet each other. It doesn't make any sense. We we have had lockdowns which have reduced the number of deaths. When we don't have lockdowns, we have more deaths. How on earth can not having lockdowns at all reduce the deaths? These are just basically different places. And at any one point in time over the last year, people have been able to point to certain places and say, oh, that's, that place isn't doing so bad, and they haven't got such big restrictions. Well, I, am, I'm getting, I don't know much about what Florida's been doing. I would imagine that Florida in January is a bit more congenial to people sitting outside and not spending a lot of time in unventilated indoor places, which is how the virus transmits. I know that in Sweden, people take government advice much more seriously than they do in Britain. I mean, it hasn't just been advice. And what should we have done that Sweden's been doing? We tried the rule of six. We tried table service in pubs. Uh, Sweden had a rule of eight, now gone down to four. They banned alcohol sales after yeah, 8 p.m. It's, there are plenty of restrictions. They've just introduced last month 
uh, a pandemic law folks in various places down. But the bottom line is, we tried the Swedish approach. Every time we tried the Swedish approach, we saw rates going through the roof. You can't but that's not strictly true, though, Christopher, is it? That's not strictly true because, for example, when the pubs were opened in July, and we did a show from a pub on July the 4th, the first day we could, uh, right here in London Bridge, um, there was no significant increase in the number of cases. There was no increase in infection. And it didn't happen, really, until universities started to go back and kids started to go back to school. And then suddenly September uh, was, was a place where the, the, the rates started to go up. So it's not true to say that by lessening up, the lockdown, um, actually that, August, that, was, that was a difference. It was very gradual increase in July and August. But if you look at the figures, you can just see them starting to tick up. You're right, it really started taking off in September, October, and it got much worse in the summer. As you would expect from a disease that is spreading falls, when it's cold outside, then people uh, not uh, not outside as much. It's clearly different in Florida when it's 20 degrees in January than Britain where it's minus two. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, let me come to the next question, Toby, and you can answer, Christopher, with your answer to this, because you're often accused as a lockdown sceptic of not offering an alternative, right? My view is simply that, you know, there's all sorts of different types of lockdowns. I and mean, we've never really had a lockdown in this country because there have been thousands of people flying into the country every single day. Uh, we've had loads of people on the roads. I mean, I've been working all the way through. I've never seen the roads in London so busy as I saw them in the early part of the summer, you know, because people weren't using public transport. People are back on the tubes. People, you know, there's loads of people out and about doing stuff. So it's not as if we've really ever had a proper lockdown, Toby. No, and that, that may be why um, the lockdowns that we've imposed in the UK uh, haven't prevented from having the third highest COVID death toll in Europe. As you say, Mike, um, if you're not going to uh, uh, shut key workers in that home, uh, that means something like um, 10 and a half million people um, continuing to go to work every day. If you're not going to prevent people going to supermarkets, and I think it would be extremely unrealistic to try and do that, uh, you're effectively funneling people into uh, small areas uh, where they are probably more likely to 
uh, pass on the virus to each other uh, than in normal times, given the number of people being funneled. Why do rates go down during lockdowns? Sorry, I thought there was a no interruption rule, Chris, or I would have interrupted you about 30 <laughs> times. So you could get away with one or two. Go on. <laughs> uh, so I didn't hear the. I didn't hear. Well, let, let me just let me just address uh, 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 Chris's points. Um, uh, he said that uh, nowhere, I think he said in no country have lockdowns been lifted without uh, an immediate uptick in infection uh, with uh, resulting hospitalizations and deaths. Well, that isn't true in Florida. Florida lifted its lockdown on September 25th, hasn't reimposed one since. Um, and uh, yes, it had um, a winter surge, uh, but no worse than in California, which has imposed uh, a very draconian winter lockdown. Um, and it's just as sunny as Florida. So I don't think you can point to Florida's sunshine as the explanation for why Florida uh, hasn't suffered an above average number of deaths per million compared to US, other US states. But it isn't just Florida, Chris, 11 US states didn't impose a winter lockdown. And as I said earlier, uh, the number of COVID deaths per capita in those 11 US states that didn't impose a winter lockdown is actually lower than in those 39 that did. Um, so it's simply not true to say that whenever a country lifts a lockdown, um, it automatically fares worse than those countries uh, which impose prudent lockdowns. And um, Mike, you asked, well, what's the alternative mm. to imposing a lockdown if you want to uh, prevent transmissions and prevent the NHS being overwhelmed. Well, that was set out in the Great Barrington Declaration, authored by Professor Shunet Pradukta, Jay Bhattacharya, uh, Michael Kuldal, professor at uh, Harvard, and they recommend a policy of focused protection. And this was initially policy of the UK government and seemingly in keeping with the recommendations of the pandemic preparedness strategy, uh, which the government initially followed, but then abandoned seemingly in a panic in the middle of March. The focus protection strategy is to acknowledge that this virus does not pose a great threat to those under the age of 60 with no underlying health conditions. So there's no need to quarantine them, cause all the catastrophic damage that quarantining them, quarantining ordinary people with no, at no risk for this disease does. The people to protect are those with underlying health conditions and the over 60. And we could have, we could have, we could have produced a ring of steel to protect those people. Uh, and in fact, what the UK government has effectively done is to render, render the most vulnerable people uh, 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 more susceptible to this disease than the less vulnerable. Um, if you look at what's happened in care homes, for instance, uh, the UK government, the different UK government's track record of protecting people in care homes is pitiful. Um, according to one estimate, I think by David Bell at the University of Stirling, something like 47% of all COVID deaths in Scotland up until around the July-August point last year, 47% were in care homes. Um, uh, uh, I think a, a paper presented to SAGE last October found that of those patients uh, in hospital with COVID-19, uh, up to four in 10 have been infected in hospital. And so we've been doing a very poor job of protecting the most vulnerable. Uh, uh, that's, that's what we should have done. We should have gone for a laser-like policy of focused protection, providing a ring of steel around those most vulnerable to this disease, but leaving the rest of the population who aren't vulnerable to it, not in any serious way, no more vulnerable than they are to seasonal influenza, to just be sensible. Yeah, um, I think, I think there's some avoid, truth. Let me just stop you there, uh, Toby, because we're, we're going to run out of time. Christopher, just before you answer that, 
I think Toby makes the point, does he not, that an awful lot of the things that you mentioned, some of the various different sort of tiered behaviours like the 10pm curfew, which the government basically admitted was made up on the spot, you know, the fact that they decided a rule of six was entirely and utterly um, arbitrary. You know, the only argument they had in Cabinet about it was whether it should be six or eight. You know, and you can't tell me that that is in any way scientific, really. Well, it's, it's largely arbitrary. The principle behind the rule of six is reasonably sensible. Sweden had uh, similar guidance. Eight people now dropped to four people in, in restaurants. Um, I mean, on this focus protection thing, you know, we're, we're in the process of vaccinating the vulnerable at the moment, and it's going on and on because there are a hell of a lot of them, about 15 million at least, and they don't all live alone. They can't all stay at home. They live with other people, so they're going to have to be uh, shielding as well for a very, very long time. Um, and uh, Toby's already more shown why this doesn't work. We have been trying to shield the, the care homes and the hospitals, especially the hospitals. It's not working. And the rate of infection in care homes and hospitals very closely matches the rate of infection out in the community. There's very little you can do about it. Look, at the, at the beginning of this, and in the middle of last year, there seemed like, it seemed like it was going to be a long time before we had vaccines. At that point, there were two options. There was a zero COVID, which seemed to me extremely difficult to do and extremely damaging to the economy and being socialised and, and probably in perhaps a country like Britain. Or there was the Great Barrington, the herd immunity, shield of protection strategy. Now, personally, I went more towards the latter because I thought it was at least more realistic. But the vaccines have changed the game. There is no need to make this horrible choice between these two extreme options. And people who are still clinging to the zero COVID, like the people who are still clinging to the Great Barrington idea, in my opinion, are fighting the last war. It's a scorched earth policy. We don't need to do it. We've got the vaccines. We just need to have this lockdown, get people vaccinated, which we're doing at a rate of knots, and then we can look forward to the future. Toby? Yeah, I, 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 Chris has said, I think, several times, because Chris used to be on my side in this argument, Mike, as you know. Yes, he hasn't um, explained he why he changed his, uh, his tack there, <laughs> well, but I think we'll I, get to that. He's written about this, certainly, and um, uh, I think his key point, um, uh, and the key point that several other people who've switched sides is that the vaccines have come along sooner than they expected, and the, the vaccines are a game changer. Uh, you know, we only have to lock down for a little bit longer and then never again. So let's put up with it because... Uh, we now, we now can see light at the end of the tunnel. Um, uh, uh, the problem with that argument, I think, is that it, 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 it assumes that the scientists advising the government, the pangendrums on SAGE, accept that the vaccines are a game changer and that once the most vulnerable have been vaccinated, we'll no longer need to lock everyone in their homes on pain of uh, massive fines. But they've changed their mind about that. Um, in the paper that I referred to earlier, Report 9 by... Uh, Neil Ferguson and his team at Imperial College published last March, they say, this is the suppression strategy. We think this will effectively reduce, massively reduce the number of people who die from COVID-19. And it only has to be kept in place until the vaccines come along and then it can be lifted. Now they've changed their tune on that. They're now saying, oh no, you have to keep these restrictions in place. Or even in the best case scenario, if you lift these restrictions and you vaccinate the entire population, they're now saying, even in the best case scenario, 130,000 people will die in a third wave this summer. The only difference to the game, seemingly, the vaccines have made, as far as the government's scientific advisors are concerned, is to move the goalposts. Um, so I, I think placing as much faith as you have uh, in the uh, lifting of the restrictions following the rollout of the vaccine 
is misplaced, is naive. We've had one of the most effective vaccine rollouts in the world. I think a greater percentage of the British population is now vaccinated than in any other country apart from Israel. And yet we're lifting restrictions far more slowly than anyone else. France doesn't even have a lockdown at the moment. Italy lifted its restrictions on bars and restaurants opening last week. In Israel, they're beginning to reopen. But we're told we can't go to the pub again until May 17th. I would have thought that you in particular, Chris, uh, would object to that particular prohibition. <laughs> well, indeed. And let's also say that there's now an extra, I think, 900,000 people. I've been speaking to some of them this week uh, on my show who have been told to shield, despite the fact that they weren't told to shield last year and the fact that they've also now had the vaccine in addition. So we're being told one thing by the government and, and other people are being told something completely different. It brings me to my last question, first of all to you, Christopher. Uh, Peter Hitchens has claimed that our liberties have been taken away from us and he doubts that we will get them all back. What I would ask you is, what are the long-term implications of this pandemic for freedom of speech in this country and also freedom of expression? Uh, I'm not sure there are any great implications with that. I'm more concerned about um, the, the the mentality that we can have very extreme measures pushed on us basis of saving lives. I, as I've hopefully made clear, I think that this has been uh, an emergency and since it seems to have given us a, an end game, it was worth having this lockdown uh, at least. Um, but you know, I write about public health a lot. I know that they, you know, give them an inch, they take a mile. So I'm concerned about that. But that doesn't mean that I have to oppose this lockdown. You know, I will continue to fight against what I see as excessive regulation. I think that the, the SAGE approach, which actually isn't quite as Toby puts it, I think actually what SAGE want to see is everybody who's uh, in the priority groups getting their two jabs, and that probably will take until July. Personally, I think we can get away with having everybody over 50 having one jab can we can open up but nevertheless you know, we can have these discussions about policy i just don't think that my opinion would carry any more weight if i'd have opposed this lockdown and claimed that we all you know that it's all a, a hoax driven by fake pcr testing and that we've already reached herd immunity and it's all a scam and the rebadged flu uh, cases you know i i you can only give your own opinion my opinion was very strongly that the the lockdown was necessary and indeed inevitable. Um, I'm, I'm pleased that we had it. I'm pleased that vaccines are being rolled out. But that doesn't mean I agree with Neil Ferguson and everything, let alone uh, Sage or Boris Johnson. But it also doesn't mean that it either Toby or Julie Hartley Brewer or even myself uh, agree with the fact that it may be a hoax, which unfortunately the people on your side of the argument, Christopher, continue to keep making. You keep calling people, um, you know, fantasists. You keep calling people unscientific. You keep calling people names which don't apply. And yet you've just said quite rightly that just because you support the lockdown, it doesn't mean you support everything the government does. And I think that's a fair point, Toby. Yeah, I think that's, that is a fair point, Mike. And um, uh, you're quite right. Um, you know, of course, there are, uh, there is uh, uh, an extreme wing of the anti-lockdowners who think that uh, COVID-19 is a hoax. We think there's a connection between COVID-19 and uh, 5G masks. Um, who are very, very suspicious of the vaccines for what I think of as misplaced reasons. Uh, but that doesn't mean that everyone on the lockdown skeptic side of the aisle shares those views. I mean, I think it is a dangerous disease. It certainly isn't comparable uh, for the entire population to seasonal influenza. It's a lot more dangerous than that. I don't think there's any connection between 
coronavirus and uh, 5G masks. And I'm broadly speaking pro-vaccine with a couple of caveats. So as you say, to try and smear everyone in the lockdown skeptics uh, uh, on, on that side of the argument with the um, claims of a few fringe extremists uh, would be as bad as Chris says, as trying to smear him by saddling him with all the views of Neil Ferguson. Uh, just to answer one point Chris made earlier, Mike, he said, we've tried focus protection. It doesn't work. Look at what's happened in care homes. Well, last spring, we discharged elderly patients from hospitals back into care homes without first testing to see if they had COVID-19. So, of course, we effectively seeded the disease in those communities. I don't call that's not what I have in mind, Chris, by um, a ring of steel around the most vulnerable groups uh, 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 as part of the focus protection strategy. OK, let's get to the uh, the final summation of all of that. And I think we could both agree, uh, all three of us, in fact, uh, since there are three of us here, um, that the government hasn't been entirely transparent about absolutely everything. They haven't been entirely um, uh, sort of honest about everything that they have done. They have selectively used statistics to frighten people and they have selectively used graphic illustrations of things. I mean, for example, just this week, Chris Whitty put out uh, one of his slides about how many people under the age of 60 were now in hospital with COVID. He said it was 48%. Now, the only reason for him to do that would be to prove a point, which means that many people under 60 are now getting COVID. What he doesn't say is how many of those people there are in terms of numbers and how many of those people who are in hospital will be released from hospital. Because without any of that, you can't make a judgment, can you, Christopher? Well, what we do know is that since December, we've had over 200,000 hospital admissions for COVID. Uh, we know that more people died of COVID in the second wave than died in the first wave. Uh, Toby's Cromo had an extremely high death rate. Um, the countries with the lowest death rate have also had low. doesn't tell you anything about that. Lockdown is a response to a high death rate. Many people would argue, justifiably, we should have locked down earlier in March, locked down earlier in January. This is not a confirmation of lockdowns, quite the reverse. I didn't, by the way, say that every country has seen cases rise up as lockdown. I was referring specifically to the United Kingdom. And I think the best uh, way, the best comparison here, as tempting it is to look at you know, Florida or South Dakota or Sweden as some kind of control group, these are different countries. One difference is that we had the B117. Virus, which transmits 50% more than uh, the um, you know, common or garden 19. So these are different countries. We need to compare ourselves in lockdown and out of lockdown. Maybe compare ourselves to Scotland and Wales, perhaps even um, you know, Ireland. But the reality is that this is a highly infectious and dangerous disease. It overwhelms healthcare. It overwhelmed the NHS. It could have overwhelmed it a lot more, but when the NHS starts cancelling operations, having to shift people one region to another because they haven't got any beds. That is an overwhelmed health service, and it puts everyone's health at risk. And even at the peak of the recent winter wave, only 2% of people have COVID. There's a huge number of people still vulnerable to this disease. Around about 75% of people haven't had it. We assume that all of them, it's most of them, are, are susceptible to it. No reason to think they would be immune. So we could have spread. This isn't based on some model from Imperial College. It's just science it's just science it would have spread it would have been a catastrophe and it would have been as i said to begin with in my opinion madness 
to allow a virus to spread when we have a vaccine for it. And I think you can make a very good cost-benefit analysis, even in complex economic terms, to show that this lockdown has been the right move. You might say as well that it was a catastrophe, Toby. Uh, would you like to give us your closing remarks? Yeah, um, I didn't respond, Mike, to your uh, raising the alarm about um, the impact of free speech on free speech of what's happened over mm. the past year. And I really do think, unlike Chris, who sounded quite sanguine, I really do think uh, that it's that, that various things that have happened set uh, a very bad precedent. Um, and I'll just give one example, which is the unbelievable censorious uh, content moderation policies introduced by various social media platforms mm. in response to this pandemic. Talk radio itself was the victim of those policies uh, when YouTube decided to remove Talk Radio's YouTube channel yeah. uh, uh, from its platform, mm. uh, albeit temporarily. Uh, but we've seen plenty of people ha having their content removed from YouTube and from other social media platforms because they, they dissent from the prevailing COVID orthodoxy. Uh, it's it, 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 COVID orthodoxy. It's as though uh, uh, a small group of people have decided what the truth is. They say this is the science, even though there are plenty of scientists who dissent. And anyone who takes a different view uh, is then not allowed to set out their case in the public square by these enormous multi-billionaire uh, social media companies. Uh, and if they can do that with COVID-19, if they can effectively shut down any public debate about the most important public health crisis uh, we've faced, certainly this century, um, then why can't they do that in the case of climate change? Chris, aren't you concerned that there's just as much of a consensus, certainly within these social media companies, about the impact of um, human behavior on, in, on global warming. Uh, what's to say they won't suddenly start uh, removing any uh, 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 climate skeptic content from their social media platforms? Indeed, they're beginning to do that. Just to address Chris's point about, uh, he's dealt with these various um, exceptions, which seem to, seem to show that lockdowns actually don't make much of a difference, like Florida and like Sweden, by pointing to exceptional things about them and saying it's not really fair to compare countries or even states because there are so many variables you can't control for. Well, how about this, Chris? Uh, in North Jutland, in Denmark, that's just one region of Denmark, uh, in response to the outbreak of coronavirus amongst the mink population last year, um, there are 11 municipalities in North Jutland. Uh, in seven of them, they imposed stay-at-home orders, they closed non-essential businesses, they closed schools and colleges. Uh, in four of them, they didn't. Researchers have looked at the impact of those measures uh, on hospitalizations, transmission, death, and they can find no discernible difference. Uh, and that's within one region of one country. So you can't claim that you can't make a valid comparison there. Those are incredibly similar municipalities. And yet in the set that didn't lock down in response to that outbreak amongst the mink population, there was no greater infection, hospitalization or death than in the seven that did. Um, just if I can just finally just just mention one more thing, Mike, before yeah. we close, I was going to say in my closing argument, if I can, I was just wanting to mention the international uh, impact of um, uh, the uh, lockdown policies across the West on the developing world. Uh, that's something I think we often overlook. We think about their impact on our mental health, on our economy, on our school children. But think for a second about the devastating impact that the global economic recession prompted by all the lockdowns that have been imposed across the West is going to have on the developing world. So the World Bank has estimated that 150 million people 
by the end of this year are going to be plunged into extreme poverty as a result of the global economic recession. UNICEF estimates that 1.6 billion children, school children, who were sent home from school last April uh, still haven't returned to school. It isn't just that. And it's particularly devastating for those children in the developing world. Finally, Vinetra Gupta, the professor of theoretical epidemiology at Oxford, estimates that the impact of the global economic recession largely caused, not, not entirely, but largely caused by the lockdown, um, is going to cause 130 million unnecessary deaths from starvation in the developing world. It's just inconceivable that the harm prevented by the lockdowns uh, is, is, is greater than that enormous harm uh, that they're going to do in the developing world. Christopher, last word to you. Um, it, it's the, the economic damage done by the pandemic, primarily. It comes back to this this contradiction within lockdown skeptics' argument. You know, I have no idea. I've never read this study from Denmark, but the difference is always going to be whether it's Florida or Sweden or anywhere else. The difference is going to be human interaction. If human interaction goes down, the virus will go down. If it doesn't go down, it won't. And we can see very clearly again with the mobility data in Sweden, everything went down, not as much as it did in Britain, but then cases haven't gone down as much as in Britain. And in fact, cases are going up and have been going up the last three or four weeks in uh, in Sweden. But if you believe that you don't need lockdown to make people change their behaviour so they stay at home and don't go out to the cinema, don't go out to the pub, don't invite people down for a drink, then you cannot blame lockdowns for the economic damage. The pandemic is the cause. But if, on the other hand, you, you agree with me and you think actually lockdowns do have a big effect, and if the cinemas were open now, people would be going to them and more cases would emerge as a result of that, then yeah, you accept that lockdowns um, are, are, are going to reduce uh, you know, economic output, but you're stopping your, your health service being overwhelmed. You're saving potentially hundreds uh, of thousands of lives. There is a direct correlation between these two things, and the lockdown skeptics don't want to take responsibility. This will be my, my final word. The lockdown skeptics, they want to imagine that there are no trade-offs to be made. They want to imagine that they can not have lockdown, that people can go about their business as normal, and that there won't be all these deaths. And the only way they can do that is by coming up with this magical thinking about lockdowns, claiming that somehow they don't work, that it's all coincidence or whatever. It's, it, it is anti-scientific. It doesn't make any sense. I accept the trade-offs. I accept that lockdown does cause economic harm. But I believe that the number of lives saved uh, outweigh that. I think you could show that in an, in an economic uh, model. The lockdown skeptics want to have their cake and eat it. And the only way they can do that is by telling stories to themselves about how this problem is either not as bad as people make out or would just somehow naturally go away on its own. Well, all I would say, and I'll give Toby the last word, even though I said I wouldn't. Um, if we hadn't locked down in January, do you honestly think that the numbers would be any different? Because I don't. Toby, give us your final thought. Uh, yeah, the argument, Chris, is not that um, people can just go about their business. You can just let the virus rip and um, no more people would have died than have died in the UK after three lockdowns. Um, the argument is... Uh, that if you trust people to voluntarily socially distance, uh, the death toll is going to be no greater than if you force them uh, uh, to, to remain imprisoned in their homes. That's the argument. And the evidence is that, that that appears to be the case in Florida, that appears to be the case in Sweden and elsewhere. Now, your your other argument there 
was that if people do engage in this voluntary social distancing, that'll have as catastrophic an impact on the economy than the lockdowns have had. I don't think that's true. If you look at the contraction in Sweden's GDP last year, it was 2.9%. So its COVID death toll is lower than ours per capita, and yet its economy shrunk by 2.9% because the government trusted citizens to behave sensibly instead of imposing these draconian lockdown measures. And that compares to the British economy shrinking by 9.9%. So I don't think you can claim that the economic harm that I'm attributing to the lockdown would have happened anyway. It hasn't happened anyway in Sweden. It just looks all round as though Sweden's policy of trusting its citizens to behave sensibly was a far more effective way of controlling this uh, particular virus without causing far greater harm than you're preventing. Well, gentlemen, I think that's been a fascinating debate. Um, it's, it's a shame it has to come to an end, really, because, I mean, you never thought you'd be discussing this still a year on. Um, and uh, I'll ask you one more time, Christopher, why did you change your mind? I didn't change my mind. This is, uh, this is a misconception. I wrote an article before the first lockdown, back in March last year, saying libertarians can support lockdown for the same reason I've been giving you here. There is a negative externality issue. So what Peter Hitchens didn't seem to understand for some reason. That I don't mind, you know, it's not the same as people drinking themselves to death. If I go out with the virus and spread it to other people, and this includes people under the age of 60, you give it, you, know, you give it to other people, it goes up the, the age range, and it kills other people. So there is a perfectly standard you know, based in on normal liberal philosophies, perfectly standard justification for government coercion when it comes to infectious diseases. I supported the first lockdown for that reason. I support this lockdown for that reason. I didn't support the second one because I didn't think the evidence was there. Christopher Snowden, Toby Young, thank you very much indeed. We'll see you next time.